My name is Kukuli Bombardier, and uh, I'm in Canada right now, so I'm feeling compelled to pronounce my last name correctly in the Francophile way. And I'm a queer and trans writer and visual artist. Um, most of my creative energy right now is focused on my writing, though, and I write nonfiction. I write creative nonfiction. I write memoir, essays, um, and I do sometimes write fiction. And so that's kind of what I get going on right now. And I teach, and that's a really important part of my life as a creative person is teaching. Um, I teach creative writing and composition at the college level. And I've last three years have been a writer in residence with literary arts in Portland, Oregon, um, their program writers in the school. So I've got to do creative writing workshops with high school students at a few different Portland area high schools, which is a blast. And yeah, and I teach online. Uh, right now I'm teaching online through a place called Lit Reactor. So it's an online forum and I have a, actually have a class starting tomorrow. So if people want to check that out, it's litreactor.com and my class is called Writing from Your Queer Heart. And yeah, and I, I always am, I just recently arrived in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I'm uh, working on getting in, into uh, teaching and the writing community here and whatnot. So. And what, what brought you to Halifax, Nova Scotia? Yeah, I know. It's kind of a, a, a far away from where I was. Uh, my partner got a job. So she's uh, an educator also. She's, she works in social work and HIV. And um, she got a, a nice job offer. So we, in a very short period of time, uprooted our lives in the West Coast and came here to the beautiful, very East Coast. So it's even, I grew up outside of Boston and this is uh, an hour later than that even because we're that far sticking out into the Atlantic. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your journey to becoming an art, art, an artist, a writer? What Did you always know that you were a writer? Did you always feel compelled to use that as a tool to express yourself? Or was there like a, a big growth of coming into that um was there a moment that shifted you into knowing you were a writer and this was a practice you could use as a tool that's a great question i always made art as a kid right i was always writing stories and um drawing and i very much identified as a visual artist from pretty early on like it just it was something i did and um you know would be sort of encouraged in a way around as a, as a kid and um but I always wrote also and especially I, I have a very strong memory of of really zoning out in a math class when I was like in sixth grade so I just decided I was going to write this novel you know I was like I'm so lost in this algebra like I have no idea what we're doing so I just started writing this like kind of terrible uh you know sort of fantasy sci-fi thing I didn't get very far with it and then I um I ended up going to art school right out of high school. I went to Mass College of Art in Boston. And in a lot of ways, just for me, I was very much a late bloomer and developmentally. I don't feel that I utilize that experience to the fullest extent. <laughs> very busy in art school, just trying to figure out how to be a person, you know. And um, I went into illustration because I loved to draw and I loved words and pictures together. I loved to write. So that seemed to make sense. And and um, even though I put myself through school, I had this um, 
strong like work ethic thing from my parents of like get a job like everything you have to do you have to be able to get a job you know you have to be able to pay the bills and and that's not a wrong idea right but it 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 also didn't really like i didn't grow up in a family of artists who knew how to sustain sustain themselves as artists either so um so i kind of languished somewhat in art school and I really the design department was very much you you know you have to figure out your your brand your style and you have to market yourself and I'm like no way I want to like take a watercolor class I'm going to take a performance art class I'm going to take film and I made super eight films and I just you know and I was coming out as queer and I'm and I just was very uh young you know i mean i think about it now and i'm like god i how do you how are you supposed to know what you want to do with your life when you're like 19 mm-hmm. and uh, away from you know all these structures and um so yeah so then i kind of just continued to make art and write just you know outside of having jobs you know like i did i mostly have had blue collar jobs and manual labor jobs. I worked in restaurants as a cook for a long time. And then I worked in the trades and I would just make art and write outside of that. And, um, and I always felt really conflicted about that, you know, like this, there's this thing I really want to spend all my time doing. Um, I have to support myself, I have to make ends meet. Um, and then, you know, this thing always felt like it got short shrift, right? Like I kind of, um, it got like sort of the last little bit of my energy. Um, and then I would say, I, I don't know if this is a really long answer to your question, but I moved to San Francisco in 1993 in my early twenties and just kind of fell in with a community of queer artists and writers and musicians. And it was a really generous time. Like I think about San Francisco now, I don't know how anyone survives as somebody who creates there, but, um, 93, I, you know, I paid like $300 a month in rent and I parked my butt at the bearded lady cafe and people were like, Oh, you're funny. Come be in this spoken word thing I'm putting on on Friday. And I'm like, Oh, I haven't written anything except my diary and the, you know, my terrible like sixth grade novel in math class. Um, but it was very like a very inclusive and welcoming time where people, I just feel like there's this creative abundance that to me felt more like, and art education in some ways than my experience in art school. And, um, you know, I had, uh, art shows, visual art shows, um, people were putting on like a lot of one person or a few people like performance, you know, like hour long performances and, you know, and we all just worked on each other's stuff, you know, like I was a projectionist for someone's performance. I built a set for somebody else's, like I made art for, you know, I was like a stagehand, you know, and then we, we just like did that for each other. And I feel really blessed for that time because that was my first sense of what it meant to really be, a creative person in community, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this generosity because San Francisco was, you know, it was cheap and it was pretty rough around the edges. And, um, yeah, I feel really lucky for that. So, um, and then I'll kind of wrap up this, my really long answer to your question, but that's okay. A, <laughs> that's what, that's what this podcast is for. <laughs> just go off, go on, go on the journey. <laughs> if you need to reel me in yeah. but uh, I yeah I wrote I was you know started doing um, 
spoken word performance stuff in San Francisco. And it was very much uh, Harry Dodge, who was one of the owners of the, the Bearded Lady Cafe, was, you know, was the, was the person who was like, oh, you're really funny. You're hilarious. Come perform at this show I'm putting on on Friday night. And, you know, the night before I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And then I wrote this really intense piece about my um, my former partner who had um, who um, was living with AIDS and it was like this super intense piece and I got up and I did it and people were crying and like, and I was like, okay, I'm fired. Like no one's ever going to, I was invited to be funny and now I've made everybody cry. And I just, you know, that's the end of my spoken word career. Um, but then I got, you know, I started doing more work with that. And, um, there was a, it used to be a theater called lunacy, like Luna, the moon, and then see like the ocean. And, uh, it was, a it was called the women's performance space at that time. And, uh, uh, Miriam Kronberg was one of the people who, um, led performance classes there. So I got involved with that community and, um, yeah, I just kept doing more of this like spoken word stuff, but you know, it's funny in a way, like I'm so thankful a lot of that stuff isn't like on YouTube or anything now. Cause it's, <laughs> it's so raw, you know, and, and it is, I'm not <laughs> trying to disavow my, earlier stuff but it was like so raw and felt in a way i'm like wow it must have just been like the shotgun blast of someone's unexplored and unprocessed emotions at the audience and but that was the 90s right like that's kind of the jam where there wasn't a lot of um a lot of space for queer people to tell stories right or tell or speak to their experience so i feel like when there was a place for it to come out it was just like a you know, it was like, it was like an ocean wave cracking through a seawall. It's just like, boom, at people. <laughs> and, um, so, so yeah, so then I was writing, I um, ended up going on the first ever tour with Sister Spit in the 90s, in 97, the first national tour. Sister Spit had been an open mic, and I want to say it was a weekly open mic. I think it was every week, which is crazy to think about. And um, just in terms of like putting on events, right? Like it's a lot to do something every week. And I was a featured artist a few times at that. And then I also did a thing where sometimes I would show up and I would sign up on the open mic list and then leave before they called me up. Cooper <laughs> <laughs> did the sister split again. It was like they called it the sister split when I'd sign up and then not, you know, and then go home before I got up on stage. Um, so I went on to sister split and that was for me, you know, I always kind of felt in my heart of hearts like I was really good friends with Cindy and Michelle. They were dear friends. They were part, we we're all part of a pretty, you know, active community. And I always kind of felt like they invited me to go on tour because I was their friend, you know, like <laughs> not because I was this like outstanding writer. Um, but the act of being like, all I had to do was be a, a writer or performer for six weeks was just really gave me a sort of a vision of like, Oh, this is something you could do. Or like, this is something that, can be done and um what a gift that is what a privilege right um i mean we were super broke like i came home and i didn't have like money for rent and, <laughs> and uh, you know it's somewhere down the road michelle was like hey i gotta i gotta um, your pay from tour i was like pay we're getting paid and it was eighty dollars i was like i didn't know we were getting anything like i was selling zines so i'd have like beer money and you know, and they'd feed us one meal a day, like from our proceeds from the, you know, the rest was just gas, like getting the freaking rickety vans from one place to another. Um, so, 
Yeah. So in any case, so I kind of continue on from there for another 10 years of just doing all different kinds of work and, um, being an artist and writer around that, you know, in my off hours and, um, slowly getting things published and whatnot. And then, yeah. And then we met at the opera, right? Yeah. Yeah. We worked at the opera, Santa Fe opera, (laughs) the scene shop. And, um, yeah, I did that until, you know, that kind of work until like 2007. And then I started working at the Santa Fe mountain center and doing, um, you know, youth leadership stuff, working with the um, New Mexico Gay Straight Alliance Network and do a lot of like youth empowerment, youth leadership workshops for queer youth and straight ally youth. And and it was like a completely life-changing experience. And it was the first time I ever felt like all of my life experience in the workplace was valued. And, um, and it was pretty pretty special time for me. And during that work, so I worked there for three years. And during that time, I I thought, you know, I kind of want to go back to school. And because I loved working with at-risk youth, um, and I felt like I was, you know, good at it. And it it was really fulfilling to me in a lot of ways. I thought, you know, maybe I I would go back to school for social work. And then I had this like sort of epiphany where I'm like helping all these like young people kind of figure out like what their goals are, help them like, kind of identify what their dreams are and go for what they want and, and move towards the life they want. And then I was like, well, what the hell do I really want? You know? (laughs) And I was like, I really want to focus on writing. And so instead of going back to school to be, you know, a social worker, I went and, uh, went and got, uh, uh, two master's degrees in writing. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and so, you know, it wasn't really a choice based on like, you know, uh, what's going to sustain me financially, but it was just like, you know, how do you, you know, how do you work and empower people to, to, to make their lives what you want it to be and, and not then say, well, what do I want my life to be? Right. And, and so in a way, like working with the youth, it, you know, encouraged me to, you know, kind of, uh, get real about that. And so I, uh, went to school for writing and just was like, well, going to rack up a bunch of student loans and take this time, but I'm going to take this time out and say, this is what I'm doing now. And, um, yeah. And I mean, it's also, you know, a huge privilege to do something like that. And, um, I know that very much, but, um, you know, and I racked up a lot of like a huge amount of financial aid debt and, uh, like most people do these days. And, <laughs> you know, but the time was like a blessing to just be like, okay, you know, how, I up until that point was a self-taught writer and to kind of learn things about craft, learn things about context and history and the canon and or what's missing from the canon and to just spend time reading and writing and being around other people who are talking about writing and reading and, and then teaching, I became a teaching assistant. And so at uh, the place I went to, you don't become, um, when you're a graduate teaching assistant, you're not assisting another professor. They're just like, here's your class. You know, they just give you a classroom. And, and so, um, so that was super awesome because I love teaching and I love mentorship and, uh, being a mentor and, um, and just learning how to, how to teach like on the fly, um, with a lot of support, but it was, you know, it was like kind of the real deal. And, um, yeah. And so then I, stuck around in Portland after I graduated and I've been teaching, you know, a few different universities and writing and 
performing and Portland has Portland, Oregon has an amazing literary community, very rich literary history and community, very active um, a bookstore is like our monument, like our tourist, our tourist <laughs> bookstore. Right. So, so that says a lot about uh, the community there. So that is, it was a great place to be. So mm. I think that's of my really long answer to your, your question. <laughs> <laughs> In the nutshell. <laughs> In a nutshell. It's really beautiful to hear, though, how you kind of figured out a way to weave all of the things that make you excited about writing and being an artist into one thing, you know, the social justice, the the helping youths, the, the queer identity politics, all of it being um, woven together. And the work that you're currently doing, it um, writing from the queer heart and um, the types of publications that you're coming out with seem really involved around queer and trans identity. And can you talk about coming into that space of, of feeling safe to be, um, to be a voice and, um, and a resource for, for young and not young people who are dealing with their own identity politics? Sure. Um, you know, I think there was that sense, like I said, about in the early nineties of just being, you know, in this, space where you know the rest of the world there's not like a lot of room for your stories and how do you kind of get them out there and and all that and so I think it always made sense for me that um my work would reflect my own experiences right and um like this is what this is what I know best or whatever um and you know when I when I started doing that uh that performance night that I had in Santa Fe the, that show Lisp, it was like a monthly cabaret for three years. Um, anybody was invited to be part of it. Like I would just, I was, I remember like I was like painting a house and somebody on the crew who I hadn't met before said something about her poetry. And I'm like, when I roll her, I'm like, hey, you're a poet, come be in my thing. Right. And so it didn't really matter if a person identified to, to me, I don't care like if how a person identifies, but I wanted it to be front loaded of like, this is queer and trans people are welcome here. Like they're front and center and, um, and then anybody else who wants to hang out is totally invited. Right. And, um, and I guess I just, yeah, I kind of still feel that way of, um, you know, for me in Santa Fe, it was, it was, I wasn't seeing a lot of that out there at the time and it's probably changed a lot since then. But, um, but I, so that I felt like it, it had to be explicit. Right. And, um, and so that, you know, that led to some interesting conversations with different people. And I always kind of thought, well, like, you know, for me, especially at that time, I was early in um, transition and, you know, I was working, um, doing a lot of odd jobs. I was like on a construction crew with this guy who lived in Madrid, who was like from the Bronx and had all these like awesome superhero tattoos, like comic book tattoos. And, you know, we're, we're digging a, 
a ditch for like a sewer pipe for the addition on this really nice house and, you know, kind of chipping through the caliche and <laughs> with a big car. And, you know, and he's like, so, you know, dig, dig. Are you thinking about getting nephaloplasty? And I was like, with my shovel, and I'm like, what? And and I just froze, and I'm looking at him, and and he and he and he looks at me, and he laughs, and he's like, he's like, are you surprised? Like you you know, you'd be surprised what people like me learn about people like you watching the Discovery Channel. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and I just was speechless. I was like. How does he even know this like this word? And then he asked me what pronoun I wanted to to uh, you know. He's like, "Do I call you he now?" And I was like, "That would be awesome." And that was the last he ever spoke of it, right? So it was just like a non-issue. And um, you know, and he had read he had read some little thing right up about the the queer trans cabaret and like the and the reporter, right? So he, you know, was putting two and two together. But I just kind of never knew, you know. And um, and so I think. Yeah, my own work, it's always been important to, to kind of interrogate my own experience and my own sense of inhabiting a, a, a body, right, in the world. And, um, and yeah, with the, the class, like, Ready From Your Queer Heart, uh, the um, a friend of mine from grad school was working for Lit Reactor, and she asked me to pitch a queer-themed class. And at first, you know, we kind of went back and forth. They were like, well, what if the class is themed to help people write queer characters? And I'm like, well, I feel kind of uncomfortable, you know, like my, my role isn't to teach people how to write queer characters, right? I mean, I guess there have been people who've taken my class to kind of to kind of do that, I guess. But, you know, to me, it was more exciting to say, well, how do we take these experiences that, you know, and for many of us in many parts of the, our lives are told are, are these kind of fringe experiences or, um, you know, are not worthy and, and then really tap them for what they're worth in, in terms of like really looking at them and finding the value in them as, as material. Right. And, um, and I think also for me, it's interesting to think about, well, how do we, you know, we have so much, uh, we have so much terminology and in different communities and overlapping communities, like different codes we're always switching between. And um, how do we write about our own experiences and use that in a way that's authentic to us, but not um, rely on our own jargon as shorthand, right? Like how do we get really specific, you know, because my experience as a trans person isn't going to be the same as this person's experience. We will have commonality perhaps or overlap or shared, shared things to talk about, but it's just not going to be the same. Right. So how do we also not just like glaze over the specificity of each other's stories? Right. So, um, I guess that's what that's kind of about. Yeah, no, I think that's really important, especially as like, it's hard to know if like popular culture is embracing trans identity more or appropriating it or tokenizing it. It just feels like we're in this really interesting, interesting time of um, idea sharing and where identity becomes kind of a free for all. And so having a space where people can learn about topics such as you discussed in writing for your queer heart seems really important to create um safe space and also a healthy dialogue when you do step into like interacting and engaging with, um, 
queer people, trans people, um, making sure that you do respect the subtleties of every experience being different. And can you talk a little bit about like what your experience as a trans writer has been um, activating in spaces that aren't explicitly for you? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, as a graduate student in an MFA program, you know, one thing that was funny for me was how in workshop, right, where you're having, you're this fairly small cohort of people for a couple of years and you're reading each other's stuff all the time. And um, there would be ways in which I would subtly reference my trans experience, but it wasn't the meat and potatoes of the piece. And, you know, and I'm just, I just assume people know it's not a secret or whatever. Um, but I do, in many, in many spaces have passing privilege. Right. And, um, you know, but it's, it's not a secret, but I'm also like, you know, I don't also front load it and everything too, with every experience or every interaction with people. Right. Cause who cares? It's not all, it's not about me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's, it's whatever. So, um, this, this one, uh, person I was in school with, was just like reading his piece. He's like, this is the real story. You got to write about this. This is the real memoir here. And this is what you should be focused on. Like, well, it actually has like so little to do with what's happening. But I also felt like if it didn't, like, I think it must, I think it was probably like I was writing about um, my younger self before I identified as trans or I knew that I identified as trans. And, and I didn't want to be dishonest to my experience of that time, which I didn't even know that being trans is possible when I was 13 years old. Like, I didn't know that was a thing. I knew how I felt. I knew what my, you know, the, my conflicts around gender were, and I knew how people perceived me and I knew how, you know, how, um, my lack of towing the gender line impacted me, but I didn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, so to me, it would be dishonest for my, me to say, I always knew I was this X, Y, and Z because I just didn't have that language. So, but at the same time, I felt like, you know, looking like this with this piece, it's about being a 13 year old girl. Like I had to, to somehow contextualize that. But then, um, you know, for, you know, for this person, it was like, that's the real story. Like, this is what you really need to be focusing on. And I'm like, it's like the least interesting part of this story, right? This particular story. Um, but to, to him, it, it wasn't. And so, so that's happened. And, um, yeah, in other, in other spaces, I think, you know, it's really interesting. I, um, I've read in plenty of readings, events or whatever, where, you know, it's just all kinds of writers and I was just invited as a local writer to come or, um, you know, it's a genre thing or whatever. Um, and I happen to be trans, but, um, you know, and then I do participate in a lot of, um, queer and trans events and readings. And, um, and I've had some interesting experiences too with, um, participating in things that made a lot of sense when I was a dyke identified or seen as a dyke um, in the world. So like a feminist type thing, like sister spits still exists. Right. And so sister spits been going on for like 20 years. And so whenever they would come to Portland, I'd help set up their show and they'd say, well, come read with us. And I would, and, um, you know, and there was a couple of years ago where, um, 
I was the only, I believe the only trans person on the particular bill for that one show. There were, there were trans artists who were on the tour, but they were not at the Portland show. And, and the trans person on the bill was me. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of, um, really complicated conversations happening around like, well, what does it mean to be this, um, this dude at like this feminist thing? And, um, and I don't feel like those questions or conversations are inappropriate, but it's just, they're really complicated and, um, and not always easy to navigate because people are coming at them from a lot of different feelings. Right. And so I could totally understand how some of the trans feminine people who were very critical about my presence being there, I could totally understand where they were coming from because they're not feeling included in, uh, in this particular, this particular event. They weren't feeling included or represented, but then there's this me, this dude who like, why am I at this feminist, um, you know, this, this event or whatever, and just having conversations with people about like, well, this is something I've been part of for 20 years. Like I've been contributing to this in some way, you know, um, but who belongs there? And, and I think ultimately it's like, who is missing. Right. And I think that's really as difficult as those conversations are. Like the, the bottom line is like, people are asking who is missing and how, you know, what does it mean if I'm there, but this, this person's not there. And so, I try to, if, if I perceive that I am being invited as the, the trans representation to an event, I try to check in about that to be like, you know, um, to, to get clear with the organizers, like, are you inviting me? Cause I'm a writer. Are you inviting me? Cause I'm a trans writer. And if it's, if it's like a specifically like feminist centered or, um, queer feminist centered program, and you're asking me to come, well, why, why is there not a, a trans feminine identified person being asked to come and, um, or a non-binary person being asked to come and, and things like that. So, um, you know, and then, so it's complex, it's really, it's really complicated. <laughs> Has that been affected though? Um, like kind of checking in with organizers and stuff. Um, have you felt like that has pushed pushed organizers forward a little bit to really um, examine their inclusivity and why they're approaching things in different ways? Yeah, I think so. Um, for some folks, it's really kind of like, um, you know, they had put a lot of thought into it and they're just, you know, like, this is the deal and this is why we asked you. And, um, you know, and we're very aware of what you're bringing up and we feel like we're addressing that in all these different ways. And, and then there's been other, situations where um very well-meaning people have been completely blindsided by blowback about um you know not involving me specifically but being like you know what does it mean to be um a feminist um blog that um references chromosomes or something right like does that include trans people and it just being kind of like you know very well intentioned people and i know intention gets a lot of um criticism right but i think there's a writer who i'm totally blanking on her name right this minute and it'll probably come to me like a, as soon as we're done but <laughs> but there's this writer who wrote a um, a piece talking about intention which i thought was really helpful because she says yes attention is intention is not magic but it is information and it is context right and so you know i've had conversations with people who were like hey our thing is called 
you know, PDXX collective. And we just got really ripped apart by some uh, younger trans feminine people because, you know, we're positioning feminism, you know, based on chromosomes and it, they felt like it was not inclusive. And, and so for them, it was just like, holy shit, how did we, you know, miss this? And, and, and having conversations with people like, okay, like, yes, it's, it's really horrible to be trolled on the internet or, um, called out on the internet. Like it's the, it's just horrible, right? It's just like the, the void is yelling at you and it's terrible. But, but I said, but where does the criticism stick? Right? Like, is there a way which, even though this isn't like the best way it could have come up, like, is there a way in which there's something to gain from this conversation? And, and, you know, and I deal with it too. Like I'm as an ally to, to people of color or people of different identities of mine, like uh, marginalized communities, um, I'm constantly making mistakes. Right. And, and it's like, well, how do I, how do you just keep going forward through really, um, challenging conversations, even if you fucked up and, um, you know, not shame spiral ourselves because who can really do anything good for anybody, including ourselves, if we're stuck in the, in the, the muck of shame, but like, how do we know that that's part of, part of what it takes, right. To keep, um, moving towards justice and whatnot. So, um, do you have that- any um, do you have any tips or tricks on how to move out of the shame spiral as you get um, as one may get called out or make a mistake? You know, have you learned anything through your experiences that you could share about how to move out of that shame spiral? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting deep. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I'm still learning. Um, I think one thing that I have to do for myself is to not just if it's if it's happening on social media or via email or electronic anything is to pause because I know there's a way in which like writing is how I think best. Like I feel I feel like you know if you had, uh, just wanted to do a written interview with me, it would be so much more comfortable because that's how I'm much better at organizing my thoughts that way. But that can also be um, become much more analytical or sharp or whatever. Um, and I know that I have a propensity to, to, to feel like an email out of context, out of seeing somebody's eyes out of, out of body language. Like it, it could feel really, um, overwhelming. So I give myself the gift of like pause <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I, I think it's really important to have, um, you know, as a white ally, I think it's important to have white friends who are who are educators and and, and artists and writers who um, want to show up and make change um, to be able to have other white people to talk to about it where, you know, we're not asking we're not asking marginalized communities to educate us, but we were like, OK, how do we navigate this? How do we do better? How do we hold ourselves to account? Um and so, yeah, I would say like having, having a, a, a buddy to who's kind of working through these things too, to talk to and like share resources with is, or buddies is really helpful. Um, being really compassionate with ourselves. I think the, the internet, um, you know, social media dialogues and whatnot can be, can feel completely devoid of empathy and compassion and, um, and, and it can be really stressful and from all size sides of a conversation and so how do we remember, like, you know, to, to 
be mindful of like the humans who are involved in, um, yeah. And I think for myself, for me, I am only speaking for myself, obviously, but for me learning how to decouple, um, my missteps from, um, my being right. Like I know I'm a good person. I try really hard to do the right thing and I fuck up and how do I keep showing up and keep trying and keep doing better? Mm. I wish I, I wish I had the magic bullet, but I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still searching for that one. (laughs) And also I feel like, you know, when a really powerful thing for me personally is to just say like, I don't know. You know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the right thing is to do in this circumstance. I don't know. Where do, what do we do now? Like, where do we go from here? Um, how do, how do you and I, or how do we in this situation or this project, like, how do we go forward? Like, what, what do we do? Like not asking people to educate, but just, just being okay with like, I don't know. I don't know. Always. Was there a specific moment or decision you made in your career or life that you feel was a personal success? I think it wasn't until after I started transition that I realized I actually decided to be here. Do you know what I mean? And actually decided like, I'm fucking, I'm doing this. Like I'm, I'm going to live, you know, (laughs) I'm sticking around and making a plan to, to figure out how to be here. And, um, and so, and this is, this is like a theme that keeps coming up in the, the memoir I'm almost finished writing where this, this idea of, um, you know, deciding not to die, which is something I probably decided uh, a long time ago, doesn't necessarily mean you've decided to be here either. And that idea of committing. And so I feel just, um, you know, not trying to make it sound like, um, my challenges in life have been harder than anyone else's. I don't mean it like that at all, but that, um, yeah, I think just that I'm still kicking around is, is a major success. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what advice would you give to yourself, the artist or writer that you were 10 years ago? I think I would say that even if it doesn't seem clear how to make it happen to figure out what you're passionate about and, and, and put all of your energy into it. Even if it seems 
completely out of reach or impossible because of family or financial obligations or geographic location or whatever. Um, and that, you know, find a way to, to nurture your gift, right? Whatever that is, whether it's as a healer, as a, as a, as a community worker, as a teacher, as an artist, uh, as a musician, as, you know, um, somebody building houses, like whatever it is, but just, you know, be as a, as the older I get, the more I see all these things that when I was younger seemed so disparate and random, the older I get, I'm like, Oh no, I've been doing the same shit for, you know what I mean? For like 20 years I've been, you know, I was, um, doing like volunteer needle exchange in San Francisco or like, um, in the mid nineties, I, uh, taught creative writing to at risk. I had no training in, in writing. I was this, like, like I said, this sort of like emotional shotgun blast of a spoken word person. I was queer, like, you know, and, and uh, I was uh, doing creative writing workshops at the Chinatown Youth Center and the Tenderloin After School program with young people who were dealing with just like, you know, just really huge life circumstances. And, um, but it was so, it was, I loved it so much. And, and I'm like, oh yeah, like I'm still kind of doing these things, right? Like these, like it all kind of fits together, but you don't always see it in the moment. You know what I mean? Like you're kind of like, well, life bounces you around these different places, but you know, you get a little bit of perspective and you look back and you're like, oh yeah, all these things have kind of been adding up all along or kind of weaving together and it makes more sense kind of down the road. So I think that in and of itself is worth sticking around for just to see like, how does all this like play out, you know? Mm-hmm. No, totally, totally. And has there been a person in your life who has influenced you to stick around? You know, um, is there is there a specific person who has be- become like a mentor or elder who has who has helped to keep you on tr- on track and keep you here? I think there's been different folks at different times um, who have really. Um, really helped me a lot. I, as I would say up until just maybe even a few years ago, I had a lot of uh, my own baggage about mentorship. Like I always think I felt ashamed or embarrassed that I didn't already have things figured out myself. And it, and it, um, and it, um, I think I impeded my own path of, 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 seeking the knowledge of others. So I find a lot of uh, mentorship through reading in a way, right? Like just how do, how do other writers write about these things? How do they tackle, um, how do they tackle these topics? Or anytime I find a book by a writer or an article or something about, or an interview with them about their process, I I just gobble it up. I always want to know how all these different people create right like how do they actually get shit done or i even read a book called creative habit by twyla tharp so she's a dancer very different practice than mine but like what a great read right you're like this person has been doing this thing she's very type a i'm not as organized as her but stretch <laughs> of the imagination but i feel like that kind of mentorship is really um everywhere and it took me a long time to not feel intimidated and just be like okay just shut up and learn something from these people it's okay that i don't have it figured out and um, and then in terms of like specific people, 
Um, she's since passed away, but in, when I lived in San Francisco, my friend Chris Kovic was a huge, huge influence and mentor. And I met her in the early 90s when I had an art show at the Bearded Lady. And I, she used to do like this uh, performance night. And I remember her coming up to me and just like lavishing all this praise on me about my paintings. And like, it was so effusive. Like everybody was like a little cool for school, but she was just like, this, this work is so great. It's not like this Prozac art. Like it's really like visceral. And I'm like, who is this kooky old bunch? Like (laughs) she had at that time, like kind of shoulder length gray hair and glass, like old man glasses. and was just like, just totally like, dishing out all this praise and I was like, holy crap. And, um, and she was just such a fixture, you know, in our community. And, um, the last few years of her life, we were neighbors and I used to see her a lot. And the last two years of her life, I saw her almost every day. Um, she, she, um, had cancer and we would just kind of walk around the park between our houses with her dog, Sam. And, uh, she'd just like walk around the park with like a paper, paper grocery bag and a shovel. The first time I saw her do it, I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like scooping other people's dog shit, you know, what are you doing? She's like, I'm working off my karmic deficit. <laughs> 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 she was just a cartoonist, a writer, like just, I really believe she was a genius, you know, just like such a mind and such a twisted mind. Like we just uh, see things in this way that I'm like, how did you, how did you picture that? Or how did you extrapolate this weird little thing that somebody said into this cartoon? And I would say that I, you know, a lot of ways, I feel like she was the first person who I actively felt um, that I actively sought mentorship from. And I, I'm sure I am not the only person in her life who, for who this is true that, um, you know, I think she was older and I'm sure a lot of us kind of were like leaning on her, but like be our queer parent (laughs) (laughs) holders. We don't know who they are. Like be, be this parent to me. And I remember saying that something to her about that of like, you know, who are our queer parents or whatever. And she said, "I, I worked a hard, a long time trying to learn how to be a good parent to myself. And, Um, and I would ask her questions that, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't close with my own biological family for a really long time. I mean, I feel like now we've healed through a lot of things and have grown a lot closer as I've become a lot older, but I mean, we were not, um, close for decades. And so I would ask her questions that I felt like I couldn't ask. I was like, I don't know who's the adult in my life that I can ask this question of. I don't know who to ask. And so uh, Chris was a huge gift and a huge influence. And um, and even though she's not with us anymore, like I, sh- I still feel like I feel her like in my, you know, right over here all the time. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Thank you.
And so we kind of touched base on it a little bit earlier about like um, in relationship to like like keeping yourself safe from social media attacks, etc. But how do you practice self care? Like, how do you keep it going? How do you keep it all together? Teaching, writing, um, relationship. Do you have any tips or tricks you can share? Sure. Um, exercise is a huge one for me, uh, whether that looks like just going for a long walk or going to the gym that, that always really helps me. Like my, it is like, uh, the best antidepressant, anti-anxiety medication that I use is exercise. Um, and so whatever it is, I think, you know, find something active that you like to do that's accessible for you and um, get you moving in whatever ways you're able is, is really helpful. Um, because I think, I, I don't know about listeners, but I'm guessing like if they're artists or writers or performers or whatnot, that they probably spend a lot of time in their brains and it's good to be, you know, find a way to be like back in our bodies too, right. To kind of balance that out and, and, um, and get our bodies to, to calm the fuck down and <laughs> be still. And, um, I meditate, and uh, I, I, I'm about to say, like, oh, I'm not good at it. Um, but that's the thing about meditation. It's kind of like ugh, nobody's good at it, right? It's not the point. Um, it's a practice for a reason. And, and I think regardless of your um, spiritual path or maybe you don't, you're a complete atheist or whatever, like it, it's, um, it's free and it's, um, it, I just find it, totally transforms my day right and even if it's just uh sitting in stillness for 10 minutes and and just trying to focus on my breathing um it does it's not complicated i think we tend to make everything really complicated like you have to go to this class and you have to spend money on this thing and it's like just put a pillow on the floor sit down shut up and and don't fall asleep and just sit there and try to just notice your breathing, right? Like it could be that easy. And, um, that's a huge tool for me. Um, and yeah. And I think just really, um, just really having a, having close friends who, you know, I can reach out to and talk to about, um, whatever's going on. Right. Like I think community is such a huge thing and, um, and especially, yeah, with social media, we can make we can feel like we know everybody, but we know nothing, and it's so it can be so alienating. It can also be really connecting, right? There's a lot a lot of really good things about it too, especially for folks who are living in like uh, in rural communities or whatnot, right? Um, but kind of knowing when to say you know enough is enough, and and just like having a face to face with somebody is super important, and um, yeah, and I think that's that's kind of it. It's mm. nothing. Nothing fancy. <laughs> <laughs> and what um, advice would you have for young queer and or trans and non-binary writers? Um, it's probably something that you navigate all the time in your practice as a teacher. But do you have any um, any kind of seeds that you could plant here for people who are wanting to progress in their writing from a queer space? Yeah. Um, I would say, first of all, just keep doing it. Just keep doing the work. Um, it's not a sexy answer, but it, the idea that, you know, just keep making, um, keep making work. And if you're able to share with another person or create a writing group, um, 
get eyes on your work and share. Um, that's really helpful too. Um, I think, you, you know, to, to produce a lot of work is, is the biggest thing and just keep going and keep doing it. Um, but then, you know, we don't want to just make stuff and stick it in a shoebox and stick it under our bed. Right. So, you know, share it with people, make a zine or a blog or, um, see if there's other people who want to meet at a cafe and just read pages and, uh, and whatnot, you know, and, and get that, get eyes on it. And, and, also think about like, what is it that you have questions about? Like, what, what do I wonder about my work? And I'm going to ask this person to look at it and say, oh yeah, like you wanted it to be suspenseful or you wanted to kind of touch upon these themes and I saw it successful here, but then you're off in this dog leg over here. You know what I mean? Just ask for what we think we need. And, and um, yeah, that idea of, you know, not having our work be in a vacuum. And I think writing in particular can be so solitary, you know, it's like musicians, you're going to jam with a bunch of other people. So, um, figuring out, um, people to have writing dates with at a cafe, it can be helpful. Um, right now I'm in the final stages of a book manuscript. And for me, it's like, I, I have to read so many essays and give so much feedback or, you know, through teaching, um, being in a writing group with other writers and then having to feedback on their pages and receive their feedback is not what I need right now. <laughs> so I have a, an accountability par- partnership with a dear friend of mine, someone I've been friends with for like 20 years and she's in New York and I'm here in Halifax, but we are just every week sending each other a list of what we want to accomplish. And it's not all just writing. Writing's a big part of it, but like, it's also like, I'm going to go to the gym three times this week and I'm going to hang out with two new people in this town. I'm going to make plans with total stranger. Just be like, Hey, let's go have a coffee. Um, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like self care stuff too, but then we just check in and, and then it's also like, we're, we're going to have to have a phone date every week too. So, so that keeps us more connected. Um, and then we're just like checking in and seeing like, how did we do with our goals for the week, our creative and our personal goals. And, and so that's been really helpful. Um, yeah. And I think, just really ultimately just remembering that your story is valuable. You know what I mean? Like your story is valuable and it's the only one there is, right? Your story is your story and there's no other story just like it. And it's valuable. Um, and it, and we need it. Mm. We need stories. Yeah. Awesome. I love that accountability um, partnership. I think that it's such a good tool for combating the evolution that we're taking with like smartphones and social media. Like we've been kind of talking about this whole conversation, like having a human being that you have a connective point to, to like check in on being a human (laughs) seems like such a healthy thing right now. It's helpful. Yeah. It's really easy. Like, I don't know. I, I get so OCD about my stupid phone and I'm on the computer all the time writing or like, with uh, teaching and grading and reading student work. And, and all of a sudden I'm just like, I've just been shining this light into my eyes for like 24 hours. You know, I just like want to be outside. <laughs> like I want some natural vitamin D. I want to feel the wind in my face. Like, and so, yeah, it can get really, um, I'm as susceptible to it as anybody else. But I think just kind of remembering that like, you know, it's, it's not to say like be a total like neo-Luddite and smash your tech, but, but like, how do you find balance? Right. And that's going to look different for everybody, but I, th- I think it's important. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. 
And so the final thing is um, your soapbox moment. If you could say one thing to the world using this as your platform, what would it be? Okay, I got my soundbite. (laughs) 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 All right, my soapbox moment, my quote would be, uh, love is the most powerful tool that we possess. Maybe that's corny or whatever, but love is the most important tool we possess and we can use it to change everything, make structural change, change society, change ourselves, smash capitalism with love. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you would never call me baby If you Not to do.